Amen. It doesn't get any better than that right there. Praise the name of the Lord our God. I'll praise his name uh, forever. Uh, That's what we're here to do today through our singing, our worship of God, our our fellowship together through the teaching and instruction from God's Word. And uh, we pray that his name uh, will be uh, praised and blessed forever uh, through us. If you're visiting here with us today, thank you for being here. Um, It really does mean a lot to us that you take time to come and be here with us um, at Faith Bible Church on this Lord's Day. So uh, thank you for being here with us. And you've come at a good time. Uh, We're beginning an exposition, or we began an exposition a couple weeks ago of the book of Daniel. And uh, we've called this series The End Time and the Meantime. And we began in in the second chapter of Daniel last time. And we uh, plan to finish that chapter here this morning. So if you'll take your Bible and turn there with me to uh, Daniel chapter 2. I've titled this morning's message, uh, Dream Come True. Now, we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 31 through 49 this morning. I don't want to read all of that, but I'll just read verses 31 to 35 to kind of set the stage for our study this morning. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a great single statue. That statue, which was large and extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of the statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, and its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time, became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. May the Lord write His eternal word on our hearts this morning. Years ago, uh, I had the privilege to read Billy Graham's autobiography. It's titled, Just As I Am. And I know many of you know this, but it was special to me because when I was five years old, um, I, I watched Billy Graham on television. That's when I put my faith and trust in Christ as my Savior. So I've always loved Billy Graham and really enjoyed reading his autobiography. But in, in his autobiography, there's a fascinating story about a conversation between Billy Graham and the British uh, Prime Minister, uh, Winston Churchill. At that time, he was the former Prime Minister. And uh, here's the way uh, one man tells the story. He says, in his book, Just As I Am, Billy Graham chronicled a remarkable encounter with Churchill in 1954, just as Graham was ending his London crusade and heading for Scotland. Graham received a call from Prime Minister Winston Churchill's secretary, inviting him to join Mr. Churchill for lunch the next day. Graham had to decline since he was leaving for Scotland. Thirty minutes later, the phone rang, and the secretary asked if Graham could meet with Mr. Churchill at noon on that very day. And then it goes on here from the autobiography to tell Billy's story himself. Billy says, when I arrived at number 10 Downing Street, I was reminded discreetly by Mr. Colville, Churchill's secretary, that the prime minister had precisely 20 minutes. Churchill asked him, tell me, Reverend Graham, what is it that filled Herringay night after night? He's talking about the place where they had their crusades. He's asking Billy Graham, what was it that filled these places night after night? Billy Graham said, I think it's the gospel of Christ. People are hungry to hear a word straight from the Bible. Almost all of the clergy of this country used to preach it faithfully, but I believe they've gotten away from it. Yes, he said, sighing, things have changed tremendously. Look at these newspapers filled with nothing but murder and war and what the communists are up to. You know, the world may one day be taken over by the communists. Things do look dark, Billy said. 
He said, we talked at length about the world situation, and then, as if on cue, the prime minister looked me right in the eye and said, I am a man without hope. Can you give me a word of real hope? He might have been talking geopolitically, but to me this sounded like a personal plea. Are you without hope for your own soul's salvation, I asked him. Frankly, he said, I think about that a great deal. Billy Graham says, I had my New Testament with me, knowing that we had but a few minutes left. I immediately explained the way of salvation. I watched carefully for signs of irritation or offense, but he seemed receptive, if not enthusiastic. And I love this. Billy says, I also talked about God's plan for the future, including the return of Christ, and his eyes seemed to light up at that prospect. At precisely 12.30, Mr. Colville knocked and said, Sir Winston, the Duke of Windsor is here for your luncheon. Churchill growled and waved at him and said, let him wait. And he looked at Billy Graham and said, go ahead. And Billy talked to him for longer. And then the the one telling the story says this. With that, Billy Graham went on explaining the gospel of Jesus Christ to one of the greatest leaders of the free world. Although acclaimed by that world, Churchill was without peace or hope in his heart. I find it interesting that Churchill was so interested in the acts and facts concerning salvation that he told the Duke of Windsor to wait. The Duke of Windsor was the former king of England. Nobody told him to wait, but Churchill did, as he wanted Graham to finish telling him about Jesus Christ. Churchill was in such a desperate place, such a tight place, without any hope, that he made a human king wait while he found out about the king of kings. Now, I love that story because Winston Churchill wanted what all of us want, and as he wanted a good dose of hope for his life. And if you look around in our world today, hope, I think, is at a low tide in America today. And Billy Graham was right in pointing the prime minister uh, to Jesus Christ as the only source of hope. It's his first coming to atone for our sins, and in his second coming to defeat his enemies and deliver his people and inaugurate his kingdom on earth. That's our only hope. That's the ultimate hope that we have, and it is the only hope that we have. And I don't think there's any chapter in the Bible that highlights that hope more clearly than Daniel chapter 2. We started in this chapter last time, and we said that really it's the ABCs of prophecy. It unveils a sweeping panorama of prophecy. In this chapter, Daniel drags us across history all the way from his day in the 6th century B.C. all the way to the second coming of Christ and the establishment of his kingdom on the earth. Um, Daniel chapter 2 covers a period of time that the Bible calls the times of the Gentiles. And we get that from Jesus, actually. In in Luke 21, verse 24, Jesus refers to the times of the Gentiles. And the times of the Gentiles is this extended period of time when Israel is under Gentile power, and there's no descendant of David sitting upon the throne in Jerusalem. That's the times of the Gentiles. We're still in it today. It started back in uh, Daniel's time with King Nebuchadnezzar, when Zedekiah, remember the final king of Israel, of Judah, all of his sons were slain before him, and then his eyes were gouged out. And it pictures the, the blindness that's come upon Israel during this period of time. But this whole time, the times of the Gentiles, it's from the time of Nebuchadnezzar to the coming of Jesus, when that greater son of David, the greater descendant of David, is going to come and sit on David's throne and rule over this world. It's the times of the Gentiles. 
Now, Daniel chapter 2 revolves around a dream, or really a nightmare, that King Nebuchadnezzar had, the Babylonian king. We looked at that last time in verses 1 to 30. Uh, So if you weren't with us last time, you might want to go back and listen to that message to kind of get the background. But we saw several things. We saw, first of all, that Nebuchadnezzar, this young king, early days of his reign, he has a dream. Probably he dreamed the same dream over and over that night. And he knew it was significant. And he couldn't go back to sleep. He has a bad case of royal insomnia. And he wakes up early the next morning and calls in the Babylonian brain trust, all the advisors and the conjurers and the enchanters and the Chaldeans. And he makes a demand upon them, not only that they tell him the interpretation, but they tell him the dream. Now, no one had ever done that before, but he's doing that because he knows that these men are a bunch of frauds, probably, and he knows they can just give him any old interpretation. So he wants them to give him the dream so that he can know that their interpretation's valid. And of course, they profess they're unable to do it. There's several back and forth between Nebuchadnezzar and these wise men, and he finally gives his decree and ultimatum. If they don't give him the dream and the interpretation, they're going to be torn limb from limb, and their houses will be made into a dunghill. Now, of course, Daniel gets caught up in this and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because they're part of this Babylonian brain trust or the wise men of Babylon. So when he hears about this, he goes to Nebuchadnezzar and gets a stay of execution. Nebuchadnezzar stops the clock because Daniel says, if you'll give me time, I'll give you the dream and I'll give you the interpretation. And Daniel goes and prays with his three friends and seeks the God of heaven And that night in a night vision, God gives him the dream and the interpretation. It's it's what I like to call that the disclosure as God shows him these things to come. Now, we left off last time with Daniel in the Oval Office there. He's in the, the king's throne room, and Daniel has Nebuchadnezzar sitting on the edge of his throne. And his heart is beating out of his chest, and he's ready for Daniel to relate the dream and to reveal the interpretation. And so I've got three simple points as we unfold these verses this morning. I want to give the dream recounted, then the dream revealed, and then uh, the dream rewarded. So we start out with the dream recounted. In his dream, Nebuchadnezzar saw a massive metallic man. Now notice verse 31. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. The statue was large and of extraordinary splendor standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. Now, I think at this point, Nebuchadnezzar, just, his jaw just about hits the floor because he knows, man, we're getting somewhere now. This guy knows what I dreamed. He begins to tell him of this statue. So it's a massive metallic man. And the image or this statue is in the form of a man because it represents successive human kingdoms that will rule over uh, the nation of Israel. And he highlights three things about this statue. First of all, its size. It was large. Literally, that means enormous or colossal. Um, There there were uh, huge statues were kind of common back in that day. So he sees this huge statue. And he says that it has splendor, extraordinary splendor. Literally, it means surpassing brilliance. He says its appearance was awesome, or literally, you could translate that terrifying. He's terrified. This is a nightmare as Nebuchadnezzar sees this great statue. So its size is colossal, its, its splendor is terrifying, and its substance is that it's made up of a montage of metals. 
The great statue was made up of five parts, gold, silver, bronze, iron, and iron and clay. And so, um, if you'll put up, I've got several graphics this morning. Hopefully, they'll help us to kind of visualize this. I remember when I was a little boy and, and uh, pastors would teach on Daniel chapter 2 and the times of the Gentiles and all this. They'd always have a good chart of this image. And uh, I had it firmly fixed in my mind. And so, hopefully, that'll happen with you as well as you see this. But, but Daniel begins to tell him about a head of gold, um, arms and chest of silver, the belly and the thighs of bronze, the legs of iron, and the feet of, of iron and clay. So that's the image here that, that Nebuchadnezzar sees. Now, at first, this figure is stationary. Uh, there's, there's no action, but suddenly there's dramatic movement. Um, it becomes a moving picture, and a stone comes and smashes the image into chaff. So this stone comes out of a, a mountain, and it's made without human hands. In other words, it's of divine origin. And it comes, and it hits this image in the feet of iron and clay, and it crushes the feet, but the whole image becomes chaff or like dust, and the whole thing um, is simply uh, blown away. And then that stone becomes a great mountain, and it fills the entire earth. Now, that's the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. That's the dream recounted. Now, the key question is, what does this dream mean? So, in verse 36, we move seamlessly now from the dream recounted to the dream revealed. And I love this. Notice in verse 36, Daniel says, this was the dream. Now, we will tell its interpretation before the king. Now, notice Daniel doesn't hesitate and stop and say, well, was that the dream? Now, how am I doing so far? But Daniel knows. He knows it's the dream. He knows what he said is right on. And notice that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't dare to interrupt Daniel either. And again, I think he's sitting there just awestruck. And he can't wait to hear the interpretation. So Daniel moves now from disclosing the dream to decoding the dream. And so when we get down here to uh, verse uh, 36 and verse 37, between verse 37 and verse 44, we see the key word for this section, and it's the word kingdom. Ten times in verses 37 to verse 44, you're going to have the word kingdom. So this vision here, the Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, is about the kingdoms of man that will rule over Israel, and it's about the coming of the kingdom of the Messiah on the earth. Now, there's two parts to this dream and its interpretation. There's the statue, and then there's the stone. So he begins with the statue, and notice what he says. This was the dream, verse 36, now we shall tell the interpretation. You, O king, are the king of kings. He's talking to Nebuchadnezzar. To whom God, the God of heaven, has given the kingdom, the power, and the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he's given them into your hand, and he's caused you to rule over them all. You, O king, are the head of gold. Now, Nebuchadnezzar at this point, I'm sure, is swollen with pride. He's the head of gold in this image. But then notice verse 39, but after you, there will come another kingdom. Now, I don't think he liked this part very well. His kingdom's not going to last He's going to be replaced someday, and there'll be another kingdom that comes after him. And you'll notice here in verse 39, after you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Now, 
The second and third kingdoms that are mentioned here, the ones that come after Nebuchadnezzar are Medo-Persia and Greece. And you'll notice in verse 39, they're barely even mentioned. I mean, the great Persian empire, the great empire of Alexander the Great are just barely given any uh, press here in verse 39. So what seems to be an empire to man is just an end note to God, if you will. Now, I've got another... uh, another uh, graphic here that shows the parts of this and what they represent. The head of gold's Babylon. It says, after you, there'll be another kingdom. We know that was Medo-Persia. And um, the, the two arms, I think, of the, of the statue that are silver represent the two parts, Media and Persia. And then uh, the next part is, is uh, the, the belly and thighs of bronze, which is Greece. The legs of iron are the fourth kingdom, which is Rome. And again, there's two legs, which picture the two legs of the Roman Empire, the eastern leg and the western leg of that empire. And then down at the bottom, the the feet and the toes are of iron and clay. And so these various parts represent four nations that will rule over and dominate Israel um, in succession. And these medals that he chooses here are very fitting because with Babylon, it was a city filled with gold. In fact, in the Marduk temple, there was a statue of Marduk there that was 52,000 pounds of pure gold. 52,000 pounds. So it was a city of gold. Medo-Persia was a silver kingdom. Um, There was a vast, they had a vast system of taxation. They were loaded with silver. And again, the two arms represent Media and Persia. Uh, Greece was known for its bronze-coated soldiers. So it's pictured here by the bronze. And of course, Rome crushed like iron everyone who stood in his way. Notice verse 40. There'll be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. So again, another graphic after this, it just shows a map, just kind of a, gives you a highlight of a map here of what's going on uh, with this, this great image that he sees. Now, everything up to this point, at least from our perspective today now, is history. Babylon's come and gone, Medo-Persia, Greece, the Roman Empire. But now in verse 41, he talks here about the, the, the feet and the toes of iron and clay. It says, in that you saw the feet and the toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. It will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with clay. And the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, as some of the kingdom will be strong and some of it will be brittle. In that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they'll combine with one another in the seed or literally maybe the plans of men, but they won't adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine uh, with pottery. Now, here's what's interesting is this seems like it's going on here to talk about the Roman Empire, but we know the Roman Empire never existed in a form where it was ruled over by 10 kings. And those 10 toes, we know they represent 10 kings because down in verse 44, he says, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never end. So I believe this has to be future. Now, think about this for a moment. As you look at these empires, Babylon fell and was replaced by Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia fell and was replaced by Greece. Uh, Greece was conquered by Rome and is replaced by them. But when the Roman Empire fell, the Roman Empire was never replaced by another kingdom. The Roman Empire simply got divided up into different pieces. And so I believe, as do many other commentators, 
that the Roman Empire is going to be revived or reunited or reconstituted in the end times under these ten kings represented uh, by these ten toes. So it will be a final form of the fourth kingdom or the Roman Empire. You could call it Rome II, a reunited Roman Empire. So from our vantage point, verses 37 to 40 are past, they're history, but beginning in verse 41, this is prophecy that's going to be fulfilled in the future. And so between verse 40 and verse 41, you have this entire age inserted in there. You say, well, why, why doesn't it say that? Well, remember, this age, the church age, was a mystery in the Old Testament. Ephesians 3 tells us it's a mystery that hadn't been revealed. And so in the Old Testament, they just saw these things in kind of a linear fashion without the gap that's there. Um, you could call this, um, some, some scholars call this a prophetic skip, where you just kind of skip over a long period of time um, between two verses. There's a passage that's familiar to all of us. We hear at Christmas where you, you see this. Um, in uh, Isaiah 9, verse 6, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given. It's the first coming of Jesus. It's his birth. Then it says, the government will be on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it. So it goes right from the first coming of Jesus, his birth, to his coming to rule and to reign and to set up his kingdom uh, over the earth. So the entire church age, I believe, fits between verse 40 and verse, verse 41. What we have in verse 41 is a final phase of the Roman Empire. It's going to be revived. It's going to reappear. It's going to be reunited or reconstituted in the end times under the rule of ten kings or leaders that are represented by uh, these ten toes. Now, some people today believe that the EU, the European Union, could be an embryonic form of this. And it fits well because it says some of these nations are going to be strong and some are going to be weak. They're not going to adhere together. And that's exactly what we see kind of happening in that part of the world today is they're trying to to come together, but they don't really adhere very well because some are strong and some are weak. But what we see in this statue or this image is massive strength with disturbing weakness. At the very end, it's going to fail to hold together. And there's an interesting thing about this statue. There's a progressive lessening in the quality or the value of the metals from gold to silver to bronze to iron. There's also a progressive lessening of the specific gravity of these metals. Gold has a specific gravity of 19. Silver is 10.5. Brass is about 8.5. Iron is about 7.5. And clay is about 2. So this image is top-heavy, and it's weak in defeat. So it's marked by deterioration and instability. Uh, Dr. John Walvard said this years ago, the descending scale of value of the four metals suggests degrees of degeneration of the human race through the ages. This concept contradicts the evolutionist interpretation of human history. Instead of man beginning in the dust and consummating in fine gold, God reveals in the times of the Gentiles that will begin with fine gold and end up in the dust. This kind of uh, destroys the idealism that some people have, destroys this utopian kind of human view of history. 
See these anarchists today in our country that believe if they can tear down our government and our culture, they can rebuild a utopian society. Well, to me, from the looks of a lot of them, I don't have much hope that they can do that. But even from Scripture, I would even have less hope that they can do that. They're horribly misguided. Man is not rising to a state of utopia. There's deterioration and degeneration, and we see it all around us today. And look, our, our country here in America is far from perfect, but it's the best country the world has ever known. We need to be grateful for it and not destroy it, but do all we can to support it. Uh, Winston Churchill said this years ago, we, we talked about him a minute ago, another great, great quote of his. He says, democracy is the worst form of government in the world except for all the rest. And I like that. I mean, it's, it's the best there is. And we need to be grateful for what we have because this world under man's reign is never going to become some uh, utopia. Now, verse 44, we move from the statue now to the stone. In the days of those kings, that is these ten kings that will be ruling over the final form of, of, of world power, represented by those ten toes, those ten kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people to crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. Now, the Bible, the, the Bible tells us this stone's going to come, and, and all believers that I know of, everybody who believes the Bible and believes in Christ, we all believe that Christ is that stone. And we all believe that the mountain that fills the earth is the kingdom that Jesus establishes. So Jesus is the stone. Jesus is the rock of ages, and that mountain is his kingdom. But the disagreement is about the timing and the nature of that kingdom. A lot of people believe that Jesus coming here is this stone to smite this image, that that happened at the first coming of Jesus. And they'll say that through Christ's coming, uh, the Roman Empire ultimately was destroyed, and there's a spiritual kingdom that's gradually and slowly filling the world today. So this was fulfilled at the first coming of Jesus and continues to be fulfilled today. Now, my view is, is that this is going to be fulfilled at the second coming of Christ. The smiting stone will come at the second coming. Christ will set up a literal kingdom on this earth that then will fill uh, the whole world. Now, I've got five reasons here why I believe that this stone kingdom is at the second coming of Christ and wasn't at the first coming. The first one is Jesus didn't destroy the Roman Empire. Some will say, well, over time it happened, but you know, it didn't destroy, it didn't fall in the western part till 476 AD, in the eastern part till 1453. So his coming didn't destroy the Roman Empire. Secondly, uh, the stone will become a mountain suddenly, not gradually. I mean, this stone comes and hits this statue and destroys it suddenly, and then it becomes a mountain and fills the earth. It doesn't picture some gradual, slow process. And that fits better with the second coming than the first coming. Uh, number three, at, at Christ's first advent, the Roman Empire wasn't divided and didn't have ten kings ruling. Uh, neither of those have appeared even yet. So I think this is something that's coming in the future. Number four, Christ's kingdom will be similar to the ones that preceded it, literal, visible, and earthly. And the Babylonians, the, the Medo-Persians, the Greek, the Romans, those were literal, visible, earthly empires. And I think Christ's kingdom will be the same. It'll be a literal, visible, earthly kingdom that he will set up when he comes again. And then finally, 
I think we would all agree with this, the statue's still running things on this earth. The kingdoms of this world haven't been judged and destroyed yet as necessitated by this vision. So I see this as happening in the future when Jesus comes as a smiting stone to destroy these world powers and set up his kingdom. Now, when you think about Jesus as a stone, when Jesus came the first time, he was a smitten stone. Jesus was a stone that allowed this world to smite him and kill him. In fact, in Isaiah 53, 4 through 6, it describes this. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. We ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace fell upon him. By his scourging, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus came the first time, and he was a stone that was smitten for us as he bore our sins, as he died on the cross for us. And today, because Jesus was a smitten stone when he came, now he's a salvation stone to all who will believe in him, to all who will trust him. He's the the rock of our salvation. He's the cornerstone. By the way, he's a stumbling stone today to those who will not trust in him. But in the future, he's coming back as a striking stone, a smiting stone, a sovereign stone. And when he comes back at his second coming as this smiting stone, I believe you and I are coming with him because I think we're going to have been raptured before that time and caught up to heaven. Think about what that will be like someday to come back with Jesus on the clouds of heaven as he comes back as a smiting stone to destroy the kingdoms of this world and set up his own kingdom. Look, this world has not seen the last of Jesus Christ. History is headed to his feet. The kingdoms of this world are passing, but the kingdom of God will come to pass. There's a great commentary, a really good commentary on Daniel by Dale Ralph Davis. I don't agree with all of his interpretations, but he has some beautiful ways of saying things. And he has a story in his book about the Nuremberg trials that took place after the Nazi regime. And he says this, he says, this text, talking about Daniel 2, implies that superpowers are not really safe places. And he says, we get a microcosmic taste of this in the aftermath of the Nuremberg trials in 1946. He talks about how on the 16th of October of 1946, um, several of the uh, men were executed. These, These Nazis were executed. There were 14 bodies. They were all cremated. There were those of Goering and Ribbentrop, Keitel, Rosenberg, Frank, Stryker, Yodel, Sison, Quart. And he says, they were cremated and their ashes were delivered to a Munich crematorium. That same evening, a container holding the amassed ashes of these men was driven through the rain into the Bavarian countryside. After an hour's drive, the vehicle stopped and the ashes were poured into a muddy ditch. Five or six years before, these men could dominate and intimidate. That night, a drizzle washed them away. It's a powerful picture, isn't it? And that's what's going to happen to to world kingdoms someday. And by the way, it it gives us, too, just a, a little bit of a window into our own frailty and how feeble we really are. At the end of it all, a night of drizzle washed them away. But Christ is going to set up a kingdom that's never going to pass away. I've got uh, just some, some different words here for the, the character of this kingdom. Christ's kingdom, when he sets it up, is going to be a supernatural kingdom. 
It says this stone is cut out of a mountain without hands. It's just cut out. It's supernatural. It's divine in origin. It tells us that Jesus is deity. I like what Paul Rees said. He said, nothing can save a tottering civilization but a towering Savior. And this civilization today we live in, it's tottering. The only one who can save it is a towering Savior. It's a supernatural kingdom. It's a sudden kingdom. It's not gradual or progressive. It's going to come suddenly when Jesus returns. It's a smashing kingdom. It's overwhelming. Uh, the Colossus collapses when he comes, going to reduce it to dust, and it's gone with the wind and driven away. The kingdom of God will smash and swallow up the kingdom of man. That's what John says in Revelation eleven fifteen: The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Dale Ralph Davis tells another story. He says the Roman and Christian-hating emperor Julian, he reigned in uh, the 4th century A.D., who's called Julian the Apostate, says he was mortally wounded in a war with the Persians. While Julian's expedition was in progress, one of Julian's followers asked a Christian in Antioch what the carpenter's son was doing. They're mocking these Christians. Hey, by the way, what's the carpenter's son doing these days? The Christian replied, the maker of the universe, whom you call the carpenter's son, is employed in making a coffin for your emperor. Within days, news came to Antioch of Julian's death. And then Dale Ralph Davis says this, that's where Daniel too leaves us. Jesus has a coffin for every empire and emperor. The only true security is in the kingdom of the carpenter's son. That's the only security. The only security is in the kingdom of the carpenter's son. And then finally, this kingdom is a sovereign kingdom, or, or and fifthly, it's a, a sovereign kingdom. It fills the earth like a massive mountain. And this is the 1,000-year the reign of Christ when He comes back to this earth. And let me just add a, a pastoral encouragement here for all of us, and that is, if Jesus holds the whole world in His hands and controls it all, then He holds your world in His hands as well. He holds my world. And I pray that you'll take comfort in that this morning and be encouraged. If Christ rules the nations and the kingdoms, and He holds the whole world in His hands, He's got your world and my world um, in His hands as well. We can trust Him, whatever, come, whatever may come our way. And then finally, it's a successful kingdom. This stone kingdom is final. It's indestructible. It'll never decay, never be destroyed. Notice He says there in... Uh, Verse 45, but it itself will endure forever. It's an unshakable kingdom. We live in a fading kingdom today, but we're looking for that final kingdom. And Christ will be an unconquered, unconquerable king without a successor. You look at this passage here. Babylon comes and goes. Persia comes and goes. Greece comes and goes. Rome comes and goes. But Jesus comes and sets up a kingdom that never goes. And that's our hope. That is where history is headed. Most of you know the name Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the, the famous uh, Soviet dissident. He spent years languishing in the, the, the Soviet gulag and their, their forced labor system. He endured deprivation after deprivation and cruelty and hopelessness and despair. And he said that when it was at his worst and he was being treated most cruelly, he would often whisper to himself, thy kingdom come. 
And he said it was kind of his own private act of protest, kind of his own personal act of defiance, that he recognized that while the Soviets were running things right then, that someday Jesus was coming back and he was going to set up his kingdom. So in the midst of all the harsh treatment, souls and eats and longed for a better day. He never let hope die. And you and I can do the same thing. When you're weary and you're tired of what you see here on this earth, Maybe you're watching the cable news at night and freaking out over everything that's happened. You can look up to the heavens and you can whisper those words, thy kingdom come. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't do everything we can while we're here on this earth to make this community and our, and our world a better place and to, to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. But ultimately, that's our hope. Look, we live today within the story of the statue, but the story of the stone is coming. And we live the story of the statue in light of the story of the stone. The stone is going to come someday, and he's going to put an end to the suffering and the strife that marks this world. And so don't despair at what you see today. Righteousness and justice will someday reign, and peace will prevail. That's our hope. Thy kingdom come. The best is yet to come for those of us who know Christ. There's a story I'm sure a lot of you've heard. I remembered it this week and wanted to share it again, but it's a story. It goes like this. A woman was diagnosed with a terminal illness, given three months to live. She asked her pastor to come to her home and discuss her final wishes. She told him which songs she wanted sung at her funeral, what scriptures she wanted read, and what outfit she wanted to be buried in. Then she said, one more thing, I want to be buried with a fork in my hand. The woman explained, and in all my years of attending church socials and potluck dinners, I always remember when the dishes of the main course were being cleared, someone would inevitably say to everyone, keep your fork. It was my favorite time of the dinner because I knew something better was coming, like velvety chocolate cake or deep dish apple pie, something wonderful. So I want people to see me there in that casket with a fork in my hand and wonder, what's with the fork? And then, pastor, I want you to tell them, keep your fork because the best is yet to come. That's beautiful. And it's true. The best is yet to come for those of us who know Jesus Christ. Well, verse 45, the end of the verse, Daniel says this, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. I didn't do it. God's the one who revealed it. And he says, the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. That word trustworthy is amen. We get our word amen from that. It's so be it. It's going to be done. So this truly is a dream come true. And you and I can bear witness to that because we've already seen most of this fulfilled, right? We saw Babylon's in the past, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. So we know that the parts that have not been fulfilled must also be literally fulfilled because the parts that have been fulfilled have come to pass exactly as God says. The Bible has a track record of predicting the future with 100% accuracy. So the parts of this vision that have not yet been fulfilled, you can write it down. It's going to happen. This 10-kingdom form of the Roman Empire is coming, and when it's run its course, Jesus will come back and set up his kingdom. We close here in these last few verses, just a couple minutes here. We close with the dream rewarded. 
Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present to him an offering and fragrant incense. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, since you've been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel, gave him many great gifts, made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made request of the king. I love this. Daniel doesn't forget his three buddies. He makes a request to the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. And we'll pick up, of course, next time with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego um, in chapter 3. But Daniel praises God and promotes God's servants. But I want you to see something here that's very important. At this point in time, Nebuchadnezzar is charmed, but he's not converted. He's amazed, but he's not saved. That's going to come later at the end of chapter 4. God is still at work in his heart. But notice he says in verse 41, your God is a God of gods. He's a Lord of lords, a revealer of secrets. He should have said your God is the God of gods. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the revealer of secrets. So he's been charmed by what he's seen, but he's still not converted And make sure this morning here, before you leave here, that you've truly been converted to Christ. Make sure you're not just charmed by being around God's people and and singing wonderful songs together and uh, seeing God at work, or maybe just charmed in some way in your life by religion or religious expression. Make sure that you have personally trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, that you've been born again born again and receive new life from God as you trust in His Son, uh, the Lord Jesus. Look, Jesus is coming again someday, but He's coming for those who've come to Him. So if you've never come to Him, that's what you need to do this morning above everything else. Nothing else ultimately in your life will even matter in comparison to that. Come to Him today if you never have and take Him to be your Savior. Well, let's pray together. Well, Father, we thank you above everything for Jesus Christ, the stone. We thank you that he came the first time as a smitten stone. He was smitten and afflicted for us and bore your just wrath against our sins. So if we'll trust in him, we can be rescued and have eternal life and the forgiveness of our sins. So again, Father, if there's anyone who's never trusted in him, may they take Jesus, the smitten stone, today to be their salvation stone. So they put their hope and their trust in Him alone. And Father, we know that someday Jesus is coming back as the smiting stone. He's going to come back to take over. And Lord Jesus, we look to You today and say, Thy kingdom come. Come back. Come soon. Come and take Your rightful throne. But help us in the meantime to live the story of the statue in light of the story of the stone the one who's coming again to set up his kingdom on this earth. Father, thank you for the truth you've revealed to us this morning. May it impact our lives. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with us and sing?
God bless you all. Thank you for being here with us today. And I pray that our singing and the fellowship and the Word of God has been a great encouragement to you. Uh, Remember, the best is yet to come, so keep your fork. If you're visiting with us uh, this morning, um, if you'll go out these doors on your way out on the right a little ways down, there's a welcome center. There's some folks there that'd love to greet you and give you some more information about our church. I'll be down front after the service. Our elders who are present uh, will be down front there as well. We'd love the opportunity uh, to get acquainted with you, uh, maybe uh, pray with you if there's a a burden that you'd like to share with us this morning, or uh, again, just to hear maybe something wonderful that God's doing in your life. So we'll be down in front to greet you. Let's uh, bow our heads now uh, for the benediction as we leave here with the Lord's blessing upon us. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I'm coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. All God's people said, amen. Bless you all.